All right, glad you're here. You need a copy of the scriptures tonight. We're going to look at a number of different verses, so we'll play Bible drill here in a couple of minutes. There's notes, some at the front, some at the back. If you need a copy of the notes, you can pick those up. Uh, On Wednesday nights, we're talking about the Bible, and on the front end, this end of spring break, we're talking about the doctrine of the Bible. And so the question that we're asking uh, leading up to spring break is, what is it that we believe about the Bible? And these are some of the topics that we're covering. We've talked about inspiration and inerrancy and perspicuity and authority. Tonight we're going to talk about necessity, the necessity of Scripture. And then we've got one more month. We'll talk about sufficiency, power, unity, and the beauty of the Bible. After spring break, we're going to ask and try to answer a different question. Rather than what is it we believe about the Bible, we're going to ask a how question. How do we actually read the Bible? How do we make sense of it? How do we apply it to our lives? So tonight, our focus is on the necessity of the Bible. Uh, If you're a parent or a grandparent, uh, you know that that uh, brings lots of interesting things your way when you have kiddos. Brooke and I have four kids. They range from 14 down to now six, and so we've got a nice span of ages and attitudes and personalities and all the rest. Uh, One of the things that has been interesting to me as a parent, especially in recent years, is that I've learned there are some things that you have to teach your kids. There are some things you do not have to teach your kids. They just know certain things. And I'll just give you one seemingly lighthearted example. Technology. Never have I taught my kids how to use a cell phone to send a text We've never had a class on that. They can all do it. Never have I sat down with my kids and said, this is how you use a cell phone to take a picture. They know how to do that. Never have I sat down with my my kids and said, this is how you use a cell phone to play video games, apps, whatever. They just instinctively pick it up and know how to do it. The one thing, this surprised me, maybe it shouldn't have, the one thing they don't know how to do with the cell phone is talk on it. There's been times where I've said, hey, call your grandma. Hey, call your friend. Hey, do this. And they just kind of look at me like, are you sure this device can do that? This is a gaming device. It's a messaging device. It's a a camera. I'm not sure that we can actually talk on this thing. And sometimes I make them answer the phone, and they answer the phone, someone from Amarillo maybe, and they just kind of sit there and stare into space, and they don't know what to do. And I'm like, "We, we need to have a class on how you actually talk on a phone. So some things you have to teach them, some things they know. One of the things that you'd better teach kids, one of the things that you'd better teach your grandkids is the difference between wants and needs. That is not something that any of us, I'm picking on kids, but it's true for adults. That's not something that really comes natural to any of us. We all tend to get mixed up and confused on what are my wants and what are my needs. You need water, you need food, you need shelter, you need clothing, you need love, all of these things you need and we will provide these things. You don't need the latest model of iPhone. That's not a need, that's a want. You don't need a $200 pair of tennis shoes. 
I don't care what they cost when I was a kid or your grandparents were a kid. If that's what they cost now, you don't need that. You're going to wear these shoes for three months and your feet are going to be too big. You don't need those shoes. There's lots of things that we don't need that we just tend to get mixed up in and think uh, that we do need them. If you don't teach that to kids, they grow up to be bratty, whiny, entitled adults. That may be some of you. That may be all of us, depending on the day, truth be told. We need to teach our kids the difference between needs and wants. When it comes to Christianity, I think that many Christians are confused about what it is they actually need. What is it, as a follower of Jesus, that you need and you cannot do without, live without, grow without, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Davis and I were just uh, visiting during the piano prelude tonight, and we were talking about a particular church that will remain nameless. It's not a church in Odessa or Midland or the Permian Basin. It's a church uh, outside of our area. And it's a church that would say to you, you need lots of different things. They would give you a whole list of stuff, and truth be told, you don't need any of those things. And some of the very things you need desperately as a follower of Jesus, they would not give very much attention to, one of them being the Bible itself. We have to realize that the necessity of Scripture is a very real thing. We need the Bible. We just sang five verses of, I need you, I need you, I need you. About the third or fourth verse, you were thinking, how many verses does this song have? And the repetition is intentional. There was a moment in rehearsal tonight where we thought about maybe we should take one of those verses out. And I said, no, it's kind of the point tonight. We need the Lord God. We are completely dependent on him. And we need his word. And so that's what we're talking about tonight with the necessity of scripture. Here's an opening quote from Wayne Grudem. He says, the necessity of scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel for maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing God's will. But it's not necessary, so here's some things it doesn't mean. It's not necessary for knowing that God exists or for even knowing something about God's character and moral laws. So we're going to try to sort through some of these ideas tonight as we think about the necessity of Scripture. We're going to look at Scripture first. What does the Bible say about itself and its own necessity? And to do that, we've got to talk about a broader topic for just a minute. We've got to talk about the doctrine of revelation. And I don't mean the last book of the Bible. I mean ways that God has revealed himself to us. And this will lead us up so that we can make sense of the necessity of Scripture. So what does the Bible say about its necessity? Take your Bible. You need it. Turn to the middle. Find the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to look all these verses up. Ecclesiastes, if you're in Proverbs, keep going to the right. If you get to Isaiah, go back to the left. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says, He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. 
It's put eternity in the heart of human beings. We've referenced this recently on Sunday morning. There is something within us that knows that this life isn't all that there is. God has put that sense or that longing or that understanding deep in our hearts. It doesn't mean that we can understand everything about God. Verse 11 says that. It's not that we understand the beginning from the end and all of it. We can answer every question, but it means that we know that there is something beyond this life. Look to the New Testament, the book of Romans, chapter 2. Romans 2, verse 14 and verse 15. Paul says, when the Gentiles who do not have the law, meaning they don't have special revelation, When the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Again, Paul's talking about something internal, something inside of us where we instinctively have a sense of, of right and wrong. Now, because we're fallen, sometimes that sense of right and wrong goes off course. Sometimes we begin to think that right is wrong and wrong is right, and we get mixed up about the whole thing. But Paul says, look, the Gentiles have this built-in sense. They haven't read the Ten Commandments, but they have this built-in sense that you shouldn't steal. Do you know how the, you know that that's true? You can go steal from any person on the planet who has never read about the Eighth Commandment. And when you take their stuff, they will say, hey, that's my stuff. You can't take it. That's that's mine. Paul says, you just told on yourself. You told on yourself that there's something inside of you that instinctively knows that there's a right and that there's a wrong. Look at the way in the back of the New Testament, the book of Jude. Jude says something fascinating. It's just one chapter book, so it's Jude 1, verse 10. Jude is talking about false teachers, immoral, unbelieving, false teachers. And in verse 10, he says, These people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. He's given you both sides of the coin. On the one hand, they don't understand, and they blaspheme the things that they ought not blaspheme. They talk about things they ought not talk about. They're, they're wrong. But he says also at the end of that, look, they instinctively have some understanding that there is a God, that there is some authority that they ought to give respect to and reverence to. All of these verses, Ecclesiastes 3, Romans 2, Jude 10, we're talking about an internal sense in all human beings that there is a God, there is a creator. Calvin describes it like this. He says, there is within the human mind, and indeed by natural instinct, an awareness of, of divinity. Calvin wrote in Latin and he called it the sensus divinitatis, a sense of the divine, an awareness of divinity. He said it's in all people. This we take to be beyond controversy, to prevent anyone from taking refuge in the pretense of ignorance. God himself has implanted in all men. This is an internal thing. You don't even have to look outside 
to have it, to see it, to think about it. It's an internal sense of the divine. He has planted in all men a certain understanding of his divine majesty. So there's this sense that God has revealed himself to us in our hearts, in our spirits. There's this deep-seated understanding in all people that there is a God. Now let's think about how God has revealed himself to us outside of us. Okay, let's think about nature. Look at Psalm 19. I know we've read this before. This won't be the last time we read it on a Wednesday night. This is a critical passage to thinking about the Bible and understanding the Bible. Psalm 19. How has God revealed himself to us outside of this sense of divinity? Well, David says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. You can look at the stars, you can look at the moon, you can look at the sun, and there is something being proclaimed in all the things that God has made. The glory of God is being proclaimed everywhere you look. It's day to day, it's night to night. Verse three, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. You don't need a translator. You just look up whatever language you speak, there it is. Their voice goes through all the earth in their words to the end of the world. Everyone has received this revelation. In the world, the ends of the earth, he set a tent for the sun, and he focuses here on the sun as a particular aspect of God's creation that reveals his glory. Comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Flip to the New Testament. Look at the book of Acts, chapter 14. Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas are preaching and teaching. Acts 14, 17 says that God did not leave himself without a witness For he did good by giving you rains from heaven in fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God has provided in the harvest, in the rain, in the sun, in the things that you need to eat and to grow crops and to make a living. In all of these ways, God has not left himself without a witness. All of these things testify to the truth that there is a God. Romans chapter 1. Verse 19, Paul says, What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. They're without excuse. The things that God have made has clearly revealed his invisible attributes, his divine power, his existence, the fact that he's the creator. Everywhere you look, you see these things, and it's a testimony, it's a revelation, it's a voice going out to all the ends of the earth, to every language, that there is a God, he's powerful, he's glorious, and he's the creator. Paul says this has been clearly perceived. Calvin talks about this and he says, look, when you study astronomy, when you study medicine, when you study the natural sciences, all of these things as you dig in and look at the small pieces of creation or the big pieces of creation tell you that there is a God, that there is a creator. 
Now, one last category of revelation. It's the Bible. Flip back and look at Psalm 19 again. The first six verses talk about how God has revealed himself in nature, general revelation. Verse 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 talk about how God has revealed himself in his word, special revelation. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. We read already from Psalm 119, so flip to the New Testament and look at Romans chapter 10. Paul says this about the necessity, the centrality, the essential nature of special revelation of the Bible. Romans 10, pick up in verse 14. He says, how will they, lost people, unbelievers, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, that's interesting because the psalmist said that the voice has gone out to every language to, to the very ends of the earth. And Paul said earlier that what's true about God, his eternal nature and his divine power have been clearly perceived in the things that have been created. But now he's saying there's people that have not heard. It's not that these people have not heard that there is a God. They've heard that there is a God in creation. They've heard in their own heart, in their own soul, that there is a God. What they haven't heard is the true depths of their sin and rebellion and the good news about what God has done to save people through Jesus Christ. That's not spelled out in the stars. That's not something that just sort of percolates up within you. And you instinctively know. That's something that you have to hear. How are they going to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they going to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You understand Paul is a missionary and most of his missionary journeys was collecting an offering for starving people in Jerusalem. He doesn't say... Blessed are the feet of the people who come carrying the offering so we can eat. That was part of the mission, but that's not the most important part of the mission. Blessed are the feet of those who preach the good news. Blessed are those feet who preach the good news. So this is a special revelation. So you've got these three categories of Scripture. Top three verses talk about this internal witness, this sense of the divine that we all have, that there is a God, that there is a right and wrong. The second group of scriptures teach us, as we look at creation, as we look at nature, there is a creator. He's powerful. He's eternal. He's the beginning. He's the one that made everything that we see. This last group of scriptures begin to teach us the truth about who we are 
as sinners. Special revelation, written revelation, the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament. Who are we as sinners and what has God done to save us through Jesus Christ? So let's put a few pieces of this puzzle together, the necessity of the Bible. We need the scriptures because the creature is not inherently capable of knowing the creator. All of us in this room are creatures, not the creator. Inherently, left to ourselves, we are not capable of knowing the creator unless he reveals himself to us. Louis Burkhoff says this, without revelation, man would have never been able to acquire any knowledge of God. We need God to speak to us in our hearts. We need God to speak to us through creation, through nature. And most of all, we need God to speak to us through the scriptures in the Bible so that we know the truth about our sin and the truth about salvation in Jesus. Right? We need God to do this. If he doesn't do it, we can't figure it out on our own. Let me give you just a little example. If I asked you to go home tonight and I gave you homework and I said I would like for you to spend the next seven days studying earthworms. Go home. You can use the internet. You can dig around in your backyard. You can go to a greenhouse. You go wherever you do whatever you need to do. Go to seventh grade science lab where they're dissecting earthworms or whatever. I want you to study earthworms. I want you to come back in a week, and I want you to give us a report, five minutes, on earthworms. Any one of you could do that. It would not be super difficult. If I said to the earthworm, go home this week, study homo sapiens, Mr. Earthworm. You can use Wikipedia. You can use a biology textbook. You can phone a friend, call a teacher. You can make real-world observations. You can take notes. You can use a laptop, whatever you want to use. Open book, open resource, Mr. Earthworm, come back in a week, and give us a report on human beings. If I were to say that, you would do one of two things first. Some of you would form a pastor search team first. The other half of you would send me to the mental institution first. And whichever one you did first, you do the other one second. Okay? An earthworm is absolutely categorically not capable of going off on his or her own and bringing back a report on human beings. Listen. The gap between you and an earthworm is nothing compared to the gap between creature and creator. I mean, we laugh at the example of an earthworm giving a report about human beings. We say, that's so silly. That's, That's so silly. That couldn't happen. Who are we as creatures to think that on our own, Apart from God revealing himself to us, we would be able to figure out anything about him, right? There's a massive gap between homo sapien and earthworm, but the gap between homo sapien and creator of the universe is infinitely greater. If God doesn't speak to us, we know nothing about him. We're inherently incapable. Next. We need the scriptures because we're sinful people and our sin separates us from God. So the first point is just the fact that we're creatures. We're not the creator, we're creatures. Now we're making the point that we are sinful creatures. We're wicked creatures, rebellious creatures. 
If you're in the book of Romans, look at Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. We'll just hit the high points here. Romans 1, verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. God made it plain to us through nature that he was the creator. Paul says all of us have rejected that knowledge, and we've exchanged the knowledge of the immortal God for idols. All different kinds. Chapter 2, verse 16. There's going to be a consequence. He says, there will be a day, according to my gospel, when God judges the secrets of men. There will be a day of judgment. Look at his conclusion in chapter 3. This is for Jew. This is for Gentile. This is for all of us. Romans 3, verse 10. As it's written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Our sin separates us from God. We push back on what God has revealed about himself. We reject what God has said clearly about himself. We desperately need God to speak to us. Next, thirdly, we need the scriptures because general revelation does not and cannot reveal salvation. And this is where you ought to go back and look at the the balance of Psalm 19. The first group of verses, the first stanza talks about general revelation. General revelation says there is a God. He's glorious. Paul talks about it in Romans 1. He's powerful. His nature is eternal. You can see all of those things and know them from creation. But then he begins to talk about the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord. This is how God wants us to live our lives. This is where we've fallen short. This is what God has done to save us. That's where special revelation comes in and tells us the truth about sin and salvation. We need the scriptures because general revelation does not and cannot reveal salvation. Grudem says it like this. Scripture nowhere indicates that people can know the gospel or the way of salvation through such general revelation. There's no suggestion or hint in the Bible that by looking at the stars or the Grand Canyon or the oceans or microorganisms, that anybody is going to meet Jesus in that way. They can look at all those things and say, there's got to be a creator out there. They're not going to hear the truth about Jesus. John Dagg, Baptist theologian from the past, says, because all other means of knowledge are insufficient to bring men to holiness and happiness, God has been pleased in pity to our race to make known his will by special Revelation, that is, through the Bible. Now, quickly, how does this get challenged today? If we're going to hang on to the necessity of Scripture, you've got to know what sort of challenges we're up against. The first one we're going to call decisionism. This is the bread and butter of American evangelicalism, uh, American Protestant churches. It's just simply the idea that all you need to do is make a decision. You just need to make a decision. Will you invite Jesus into your heart, yes or no? Will you pray this rote prayer, yes or no? If you'll say these words, if you'll repeat after me, it's just like a president or a senator or a Supreme Court justice taking an oath of office. You don't have to mean it. You don't have to know it or understand it. You just have to say it and repeat it. If you'll say this and do this, then you'll be good. There's some other things that might be helpful, but that's what you really need. Have you made a decision? 
We need more than a decision. We need the scriptures. We need the scriptures to come to a point of decision, but we also need the scriptures after we make that decision to follow Christ. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Here's a second challenge, spiritualism. This would be our Pentecostal and our charismatic friends. None of them would say we hate the Bible. None of them have Bible-burning events. None of them scratch out verses in their Bible. But many of them rely on sort of a gut feeling that they think they're getting from the Holy Spirit more than they rely on the Word of God. Calvin warned about this 500 years ago. Calvin used the term fanatics. He said, beware of fanatics who talk a lot about the Holy Spirit but not a lot about the Bible. We're fine if you want to talk about the Holy Spirit. We all believe in the Holy Spirit. He's the third member of the Trinity. We're all in for the Holy Spirit. He's inspired this book, and he would love to help you understand this book. So if you want to talk about the Holy Spirit, you ought to talk about the book that he inspired. You can't just talk about the Holy Spirit and ignore the Bible. Thirdly, challenges to the necessity of Scripture would be inclusivism. Inclusivism is a worldview that says Jesus is the only way that anyone will be saved, but it's not really necessary for you to know about Jesus in order to be saved by Jesus. As long as you're a nice person, you're sincere, you're moral, you're upright, you're upstanding, well, then when you die, you'll have this epiphany and you'll say, huh, Jesus was the one who saved me. I never knew it. Well, this is great. That's inclusivism. It's the exact opposite of what Paul said in Romans 10. We just read it. If they don't hear, they can't confess, they can't believe, they can't be saved. Somebody has to go preach, so we need to send somebody to go preach to those people. It's a false worldview. A step past inclusivism is pluralism. Pluralism is a worldview that says you don't need Jesus to be saved. You just need sincerity in whatever faith it is that you hold to. There are are a plurality of ways by which you can make it to heaven. Islam is a way. Buddhism is a way. Christianity is a way. We don't believe that because we believe what the Bible says. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. There's only one name, Acts 4.12, given among men under heaven by which we might be saved. It's the name of Jesus Christ. So we reject this, but it's a challenge to the necessity of Scripture. Lastly, universalism. Not many people hold to this really, but it's just the idea that we all go to heaven. It really doesn't matter who you are or what you do. As long as you exist and then you die, you get to go to heaven. If that's true, there's certainly no need for the Bible. There's no need to hear what the Bible says. So these are challenges to the necessity of Scripture. How do we apply this doctrine to our lives? Let me give you a few thoughts. Number one, we need the Bible. We need it. This is where we just have to go back and remind ourselves about the difference between wants and needs. Jesus in Matthew 4 is being tempted by the devil. He quotes the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3 and he says, It's written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. All of you know that you've got to eat to live. All of you. You know that. Jesus says, you cannot truly live by bread alone. 
if you want to truly live, you need bread. What you really need is the Word of God. It's not optional. It's not bonus points. One of my kids brought home a, a sheet. And they said, if you send this back with your parent's signature, we'll give you 100. Bonus points, right? The Bible's not bonus points. It's not just like helpful extras. You need it. Jesus said you have to have it. You have to have bread to live. You have to have the word of God to live. We need the Bible. Secondly, we need special revelation to make sense of general revelation. This is the the two parts of Psalm 19. There's some things we can see about God in general revelation, but what we need is the Bible to sort of clarify our vision. Because if all you do is look at the microorganisms and the bigness of the sea and the mountains and the vastness of the universe, you can come away knowing that there is a God and that there is a creator, but there's a lot of things about God you'll have absolutely no idea about. We need special revelation to fill in our understanding of God. Thirdly, very similar point, we need the Bible in order to know the truth about God. And I would just have you go back and look at Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, God had just saved his people from slavery in Egypt. They knew that there was a God. They knew it. They knew there was one supreme, powerful, almighty God. And they knew enough about that God, which really at that point wasn't a lot, to build a golden calf and to be idolaters. And in that moment where they're falling and slipping into idolatry, God is speaking special revelation, the Ten Commandments to them saying, we got to clarify some stuff. You've seen my power. You've seen my glory. You, you know that I'm real. Let's get square on what's true. There's only one, and you don't worship any others. Do not worship statues. Don't take my name in vain. All the way through the Ten Commandments, right? He's clarifying the truth about who he is for his people. Calvin says this, God bestows the actual knowledge of himself upon us only in the scriptures. Next, we need the Bible in order to be saved and sanctified. Saved and sanctified. Here in a couple weeks, we'll get to John 17. John 17, 17, Jesus is praying for his followers and he prays, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. That's from the lips of Jesus. If his people are going to be sanctified, if they're going to be made holy, if they're going to grow in Christ's likeness, it has to happen according to the truth, and the truth is the word of God. Apart from the word of God, there is no sanctification, there is no growth in holiness, there is no becoming more like Christ. We need the Bible in order to grow in our sanctification. Last, we need the Bible to make disciples of all nations. We read Romans 10 just a moment ago. This doctrine will have a massive, massive impact on every church, one way or the other. If you believe this doctrine and seek to implement it, it has a huge impact. If you don't believe it or you don't think it's that important, it'll have a huge impact. The question is, what will the focus of a church be? Every church has to have a focus. Not having a focus is a focus. Every church will have a focus. Will that focus be of a church 
Will the focus be on the felt needs of the people in that church, the things that they think they need, or will the focus of that church be on the genuine, real needs of the people in that church? Every church will come down on one side of that. What is the emphasis going to be on? Is it going to be on the felt needs of the people here, what they think they need and want, or is it going to be on what they actually need to know the Lord, and to grow as disciples. Look, we have to answer this question when we go to Kenya. We go to Kenya, like Paul taking this offering for hungry people. We go to Kenya, we feed kids. Is that it? Is that all we do? No. We take the good news with us. And we try to equip those pastors to invest in those kids each and every day when they give them a plate of hot food to invest in those kids and to say, let's talk about the Bible. Every single day. You don't live on bread or ugali alone. You're going to live on the very words of God. As a church here in the United States, we have to make this decision every time we, we plan a worship service, every time we plan a ministry or a program. What is it going to center around? Is it going to center around what people think that they need, which is what they really want, felt needs, entertainment, a few life tips, a few suggestions about how to patch up this or that and make things a bit smoother? Or are we going to try to get as much of the Word of God in front of people as possible? Every church has to make this decision as they gather and they scatter. What is it that we actually believe about the necessity of the Bible?